You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. I'm Peter Banatini, the host. And on this podcast, we talk to people in the field of neuroimaging, experts, luminaries, uh, rising stars, and, and discuss their work issues and anything else in between. And today, uh, I had the honor of having three guests, two luminaries and one rising star. Uh, the luminaries are Tom Nichols and Jack Van Horn, who've been in the field over 20 years. Uh, it's really pushing data sharing and data standards and um, specifically with fMRI, uh, but, but not completely limited to fMRI, uh, also including structural MRI and other things. And, uh, and the rising star is Remy Gao, who's been extremely active uh, through his career, um, his, his uh, growing career of uh, you know, sort of trying to change the culture of, of neuroimaging, of uh, promoting these best practices of reporting all the steps of analysis and uh, sharing data and pooling data and how to best go about that. Uh, he actually took the, they uh, basically the group had a, uh, a paper called COBITIS uh, and a movement in some sense called COBITIS, which stands for Committee on Best Practice in Data, in data Analysis and Sharing. And he made it into sort of an e-COBITIS, sort of a checklist. Uh, and, and it's still evolving, you know, as we have new analysis techniques and new goals for our data as well. So in this discussion, we talk all about um, everything about the origin of Cobitis, Cobitas, and also some issues in, you know, data reproducibility, uh, how to share data, how to report on metrics. Um, and, and not only that, uh, sort of the philosophy of, of, of doing this and some of the, and we kind of get into the details and some of the challenges, you know, how do we grapple with this problem? You know, I don't think anyone thinks that will solve the problem, but um, creating a culture in which uh, everyone's aware of what uh, the best practices are um, in terms of reporting, and even analysis to some degree without being prescriptive uh, is, a, is a good thing for the field. And I think it will, it tangibly helps the field. So it's a great discussion. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Thanks all three of you uh, for, for uh, being on the Zoom and um, looking forward to a good discussion. So I'd just like to start off uh, with uh, just a just a quick quick question. You know, people uh, hear the term cobitis, cobitis, cobitas, <laughs> and I need more coffee this morning. Um, and um, people wonder, you know, what was what motivated to, what motivated it to form, and and what was the process by which it actually came out and became real. Well, I guess I'll start with this uh, particular. Lead in, Peter. Thank you so much, by the way, for for having us. Uh, this is exciting to to be here to to join you and Tom and and Remy. Um, so the start of this idea really grew out of a strategic planning meeting that we had um, when uh, I think Karen Berman had taken over as the incoming uh, OHBM 
chair and we had a strategic planning meeting, which I believe, as I recall, was in um, Geneva, Switzerland. And we started there thinking about how we wanted to see the organization grow and evolve and mature um, at kind of a strategic point. We kind of knew that the 25th anniversary was coming up and we wanted to make sure that uh, we were taking steps to uh, you know, demonstrate that human neuroimaging in particular was a mature and, and reliable science. And we recognized that that notion of reliability and reproducibility was something that we were concerned about. And we went about asking ourselves, well, what could we do to promote reproducibility, um, data sharing, uh, sharing of not only data, but also of, of software and other methods? And how could we do that better? Um, we realized there was this reproducibility crisis. And at the time, neuroimaging was kind of being held up as having a lot of small sample studies that uh, were reporting things that other people could not reproduce. And so uh, I and yourself, I believe at the time and several yep. others, we put together a, a little policy statement saying that uh, the OHBM was committed to, to, to moving in this direction to uh, try to find ways to be, uh, to encourage reproducibility and the openness, the open science of neuroimaging. And out of this uh, came this notion of creating um, the COBIDAS uh, committee. And I'll let Tom talk about that in a second. Um, when we were thinking about this, and I was kind of asked to kind of identify somebody from our community who could carry this thing forward and, and serve as the point person, I immediately thought of Tom Nichols. I have known Tom for many, many years, and uh, if there was anybody who could really be the leader of this, uh, it was going to be somebody like Tom. And uh, I have to say, and I hope you don't mind, Tom, that I could not be more pleased with how you carried this forward in your leadership on this. And uh, it's, it, it's interesting that we're, we're here now um, and hopefully going to see a, a revision of this uh, coming up. But that's how it got started. Maybe, Tom, maybe you can carry sure. it forward uh, from here. Thanks, Jack. Uh, well, so actually, so it was in June 2014 in Hamburg where the uh, council approved the statement. Okay. That's right, a statement on neuroimaging research and data integrity. And that basically uh, outlined a number of, of issues that really need to be addressed. And, and the, the way that they, the council chose to take it forward was by creating this committee. And, uh, and, and it, it, I have to congratulate you on creating the name, Committee on Best Practice and Data Analysis and Sharing. It was, it it was, was Nico Kriegescorta and myself. Oh, it was Nico. Oh, yeah. Nico is there. We, That's right. We, we yeah. pulled that one kind of out of the ether somewhere. It and, is uh, both pronounceable and uh, leads to good, unique uh, keyword searches on Google. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, you asked me to lead the group on behalf of, of council and I solicited volunteers and you know, I really tried to get a range of people with expertise, but also across you know, mid-level to senior career level. Um, and, uh, and just to set about this process of trying to sort of establish some, you know, some good practices. And what we, we realized really early on is that it, it just is not feasible to just sit down and say, this is the right way to do it. Because there are just so many different things that people do. Even we quickly realized, okay, we got to focus this on just MRI. And if we were to do it again, I might even fractionate it even into sort of structural versus functional or other, other divisions. But at the time we, we said, okay, all everything having to do with the MRI. And by and large, it's just, there's, there's no way to just say, you know, do it this way, don't do it that way. But what we could say is that we really need to focus on transparent and complete reporting of what people do. 
And so that became the focus. We identified a range of, of different sort of domains, a total of seven of them, everything from experimental design through data sharing and, and reproducibility. And in each one of these domains, we identified what are the important things that you really need to communicate when you report your results. And then we also produced a, a table as an appendix, just big long list of, of checklist of things, of things that you really should should report. Some things which you know may not always be appropriate, other things that you you always really should should uh, report on. And uh, and that's that's what happened. We took a team of uh, over about a dozen people, and uh, by uh, 2016 we uh, published that result. And actually, I'm really proud of the fact that we released this to the membership of OHBM, and we solicited input. And I think we got close to 100 different sort of individual uh, comments and we, we acted on each of these and responded to them, updated the report and then finally submitted it to council and it was approved. And it, it really was in that way, a community effort. Uh, and then finally in 2017, we, we published a major neuroscience commentary just sort of discussing the process and, and sort of what we, we learned from that. But uh, really, really glad we're still talking about it and it, it does still get referenced. And I think it's an important document and I'm looking forward to uh, getting the band back together and uh, updating the COVID SMRI report. Yeah, yeah. So, so Remy, I, do you do you have anything to to add to that? Or yeah, I was just I was just wanted to mention maybe for like listeners who might not be aware um, that also after that came the the COVID for EEG and MEG that uh, got released more recently. So that's um, so that a thing that um, the first report for MRI sort of laid a good groundwork that um, could then be reused later on uh, by <clears throat> by another team of people to sort of um, sort of carry on the torch I would say with like another with other modalities as well. That's one of the things which I think was important about the initial effort um, led by Tom. You really kind of set the standard for how we set standards and I think you made an important point about it's just too difficult to go in with a bunch of thou shalts and thou shalt not kind of idea because there's so much variation and really you have to kind of look at, you know, an evidence-based kind of dispassionate, you know, what is just, what is evidence-based best practice and go on that. Now you'll have to update that as we're talking about a little bit here um, every once in a while, but that's the best way to do it. Um, and I thought the way that that was done and how others have then built off of that for their other sets of best practices has just been ideal. So, and uh, the publication, of releasing it to the community um, so that you have the full version and then getting another version that's uh, more the uh, summarized version in some place like Nature Neuroscience. That's fantastic. Right? So it's just an ideal outcome. Yeah, so the idea then with, with COVID-S is that with a transparency of reporting your practices without a, and there'll be some sort of a, you know, awareness and feedback as to what worked or didn't work or maybe trying to, you know, you know, better replicate what was done. Uh, you know, it's, it still seems, um, you know, it's interesting because it's a tough problem. Uh, it, it's a really hard problem because uh, as we're learning, I mean, there's so many, uh, even as I, as I think about this, I mean, there's a, a COVID has addressed all these stages of decision-making and processing and, and so many different things you can do. It seems that that's sort of like, you know, there's layers and layers and layers of decision-making. And, and at least to me, that was kind of uh, brought out even further, uh, you know, in the Nature paper. The first author, Botninik uh, Nezer, uh, basically showing that you know even with pretty solid groups uh, doing reasonable stuff, uh, they all analyze, you know, all these groups analyze this one data set, and they got, uh, a, I think, I thought, I don't know, Tom, I think you were on, 
part of that paper, but, uh, or maybe not. Um, Remy too, both of us. No, Remy, both of you, sorry. Um, and, and they got different results. Um, I, I wonder if there'll be another iteration of that paper sort of dissecting, you know, maybe, I mean, the idea with the paper was that it's good to have a consensus. It's good to have, you know, comparing different methods, but also it would be good to sort of use that to dissect where, the, where things diverged uh, and, and maybe use that to guide future COVID-OS. Sure, I, I can say a little bit about that and let, let Remy say more. Um, what struck me about those results is that, yes, of course, there was such incredible differences. But what was notable was that those differences were, by and large, not explained by pre-processing um, choices like software uh, uh, and, and sort of particular, you know, to use nonlinear versus linear interpolation in the for the, the, the warping. Um, and the, the, the most of the differences seem to be driven by choices made in modeling the fMRI signal in the individual subject, so-called first level model. And uh, that both that was in choices made by the individual groups and also implicit choices that are made by the software um, on, on subtle things like orthogonalization of predictors and the like. Yeah. Um, so that was notable. And that's, that has led to, to some people saying, well, that's pretty exciting in a way because it says if you do want to explore this analytical variation, maybe you don't have to build some fancy thing that lets and master seven different software packages. Maybe you can just use your one and then try a bunch of different options in terms of the, uh, the way you model it. But of course that leads to what they call a multiverse analysis. And then you've got this extra challenge of how do you integrate all those different results. And that was of course the main role of the, the, the paper. Um, and that's something I'm, I'm interested in doing more work on. I think it's a it's relatively underdeveloped area. It's, it's like meta-analysis, but in meta-analysis you have independent studies you're trying to com combine together. And in megaverse analysis, it's all the same data Right. But then you've just analyze it with a bunch of different, uh, different ways. So and, I don't know, Remy, it, if you want to ask. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I mean, I might just make a side comment on the, so the, what you refer to as like what, what people call like the NARP study, because that's, that's what I think now it, it, it's, it's became known as. Uh, one of the things first is that we, we learned that in, in PET neuroimaging, they uh, had done something similar a few years back as well. And I think that uh, now there's a current project with the same with the EEG, I think. So that's, that's also interesting to see what's gonna come out of, those, uh, of that one. Uh, but one thing that actually links the NARPS uh, project and study with COVIDAS is actually all the teams were asked to report uh, their methods, their analysis using the COVIDAS standard, right? So that's, that's, that, that was like really essential to make sure that we had a standardized way so that we, so that the different, uh, the results of the different teams, and what they had done could actually, actually be compared. So that's that's I think that's um, even just there that that already shows the the usefulness of um, COVIDAS and of like uh, having standardized uh, reporting. Um, yeah, uh, way of reporting your methods. So. And that's really interesting. How right you you sort of discovered these other subtle aspects of modeling the hemodynamic response and things like that 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 drive a lot of the, you know, that seems counterintuitive to some descent sense, I mean, or maybe not really completely what people think of first when they think of sources of variance, but, um, but yeah, no. And so you, so then the, I, the hope then is that uh, the consensus is sort of the truth in that regard, as opposed to, you know, finding, right. you know, there might be one best way to do it. And then, <laughs> so I think we'll, we'll I, unfortunately, I think we'll need many more of these uh, megaverse analyses before we might be able to identify modal or sort of best. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of these things 
relate to things that people could just re reasonable people could disagree on. I mean, I'll, I'll say one, one thing of hope, and that is, uh, is that there are a lot of, uh, this study was a mixed gamble study, and uh, it was it required some quite subtle um, modeling. So basically some of the, the questions had to be answered with a parametric modulation of one regressor with another. And those things are quite subtle and can be, you know, I think that's part of the reason why we saw such differences. If this was a block design, you know, with one main effect, I think you would have seen a lot less uh, variability. So I mean, I think that's that's telling you something about fMRI. It's not that there's, you know, this this was a good stress test, and there are a lot of people that do studies that need this mm -hmm. level of complexity. Uh, but just to say, not all studies uh, involve this level of complexity in their, their first level modeling. Yeah. Also, at least what I got from the paper as well is it it, it sort of speaks to a little bit on the on how people draw conclusions. I mean, you know, of course, you always have to make a map and you have to threshold, but then. You know, you could draw different conclusions based on, I mean, at least I think as I understood this paper is that they looked at the spatial correspondence between the threshold results to some degree. And, and uh, you know, that's very, it feels like it's very sensitive to, uh, you know, what threshold you choose. And, you know, if you sort of had an unthreshold map and looked at, you know, it seems like results might converge a little bit depending, you know, based on the type of post-processing or interpretation you make of the the data. Yeah, it does worry me sometimes that the most important sort of system in a brain mapping study is the visual system of the scientist who studies yes. the thresholded maps. Yes. And uh, it, it, that sometimes might not be avoidable, but I'm always keen and, and, and energized when I see studies that come up with ways of sort of casting the problem in another way or either bringing it down to individual questions. And I should say the NARP study did demand that each team produce yes, no results for very focused hypotheses. Right. And I think that would be, you know, if we all were sort of challenged to do that more, I think that would be, that'd be good. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of complexities in the data, but in the end, that's what people are going to take away from the studies. Yeah. Uh, okay. So talking about, you know, future COVID-S uh, uh, efforts, um, you know, what, what, what did you see were potentially you know, how did the field, how has the field evolved maybe in those few years and in what might be the gaps in, in the current covid that uh, that might need to be filled uh, with regard to reporting? Sure, well, I'll, I'll start at a high level then maybe Remy has some other comments. And, and that is, so, so there's some things that I think, you know, anytime you look at something again, you know, you might, even if we'd done it just a year later, we might make slightly different choices. And I think that's something that we'll do and revise and probably make it slightly better that way. But at another level, there is the things that, um, you know, MRI is exciting because they're always coming up with new ways to acquire data. So for example, I uh, believe multi-slice or multi-band imaging wasn't really much of a thing when we first did that report, and now that is. And so there are new technologies that are evolving that we will, will be important to integrate those into the, into the report. And then I think there are just kind of the cultural changes. So I think we were very cautious about how hard we pushed about the importance of data sharing and, and, and publishing your data. And I think we, we just have a greater level of confidence to say, yes, this is really important and it really needs to be done. So I think that's, that's those three things, just sort of minor sort of revisions, adapting to changes in the field and uh, in terms of the technology, and then adapting to sort of the, 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 the state of open science as it is. Yeah, uh, uh, I've been working with people at the NIH and there's one, one scientist who has a, a very subtle study and collected you know, 150 subjects and looking for a very subtle effect. And he found like extremely low uh, uh, interclass correlation values. And, 
and he didn't know why. And, and, and it's, it, it was a very much of a learning experience as I worked with, you know, the team with Bob Cox and AFNI trying to, we're still working with trying to dissect why. And, uh, and, and, and it even comes down to things like, you know, obviously the time series might vary. They initially were saying, oh, it's a problem with the scanner. And it wasn't a problem with the scanner. And, 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 and then it comes down to sort of even subtle things like uh, looking at each individual, how you pick your regions of interest. Um, and, and, you know, having a little bit of warping where you don't expect it changes things tremendously. And, you know, he was all ready to, you know, write a paper saying fMRI is not useful. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, but I do think that, uh, well, I mean, that it's not useful in this, in this particular case or something like that. But I think it's important to try to, you know, head those off. I mean, there's always things like that that come up and, and it does seem like there's even subtle things like that that uh, your, your, your average practitioner will miss. And, and one, of the, one of the things that I also saw from that first paper is that um, your multi-study paper is that one of the fallouts was like, oh, well, maybe if we have as much automated as possible, that would help the reproducibility. But at the same time, it seems that in this particular case, you, there's an art to, you know, you really have to look carefully at your each individual subject's data and, and, and every step of the way and sort of, and an expert needs to tweak it, but at the same time, if you're not an expert, you could be making it worse. So it's it's a tricky balance in that regard too. So automating things works to a point. It's, it can be very helpful, especially when you have you know, a lot of subjects to kind of grind through. But I just don't think you can take the human completely out of the loop. You know, you should always be checking. I could you know numerous stories that I've experienced where somebody entered the wrong number as part of their pre-processing script. And it caused the, all the brains to like shrink to like half the size they should have been. And then when they got fit to the template atlas, they weren't, they didn't fill up the atlas. And so when they did their analysis, they just got like basal ganglia activation because all the brains were that size, right? And it was just cookie cuttered out the basal ganglia. And you know, when you went in and found that, and then redid it, you found that, okay, it fleshed things out and, and you got cortical activation again. But it, it's easy to do. Somebody misses a decimal point, they don't catch it. And then, you know, you, you've run it through a script and then that's, that's it. It's always important to kind of double check and triple check what you've done just to make sure so you don't make stupid or uh, careless errors. My favorite was uh, someone was combining uh, different contrasts from different studies, but it was the same sort of gambling task. But in one, the, the contrasts were defined relative to uh, pence, or I think it's probably euro cents, and the other one, they're defined oh. in euros. And that actually was enough to create numerical underflow problems <laughs> that were oh. so different. <laughs> that right? had really bizarre errors uh, until we figured that out. There, there's some strange so, things that can happen uh, if, you, if you're not yeah, careful so I don't, about that. I don't know they have a good answer really for, for your, your, your question, uh, Peter, because it, it really goes beyond sort of, you know, um, reporting standards and yeah. uh, just saying that there's a lot of, a lot of training that's needed to, to do, you know, to, to do um, MRI well and fMRI. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, you're right. I mean, it really is. I mean, fMRI is really robust uh, and, and for the most part things work, but, um, but right, when you're starting to push the limits, uh, a, a certain amount of skill uh, and trading uh, it becomes much more important. As part of Let me just loop back because I think actually I was thinking uh, Remy was going to jump in, but you're talking about sort of things that that are to come with Kobe Dasko. I think something that, yes. that's really important that Remy's been working on 
is actually making Kobidas more user-friendly. So if you look through the Kobidas report, there are literally, I don't know, 40, 50 pages of these tables of like, did you do this? Did you do that? Do that? And it's really overwhelming. And a lot of it doesn't necessarily apply to your study. But uh, maybe, Remy, you can talk about the effort you've been involved in uh, with eCobidas. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's easier to use. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, I think, yeah, that's, that's definitely one thing that um, I've been really passionate about and uh, I've been able to find people who are really passionate about this, which is, yeah, as you were saying, the, the Kubitas report is fantastic. It's a great resource, but going through it is 50 pages, even just the table. I mean, maybe not 50, 30 pages of just tables um, at the end, uh, which is great, except that I think there are two issues with that, is that many of the items that might not concern you, like there are two pages on arterial spin labeling. If you don't do that, you might have to like flip through them all the time. And, and what, what, what we started doing with this was to sort of, first of all, just turn that into an actual single table and that now goes up to like 400 items. And that is just completely overwhelming for anyone uh, to actually go through. And we're trying to transfer that into an app where um, you would only be exposed to the items that are relevant to your use case, right? So you don't need to sort of fill in four, 500 items or to flip through entire pages of things that do not concern you. Because I think one, one aspect that is really important for um, a project like this is that uh, adoption by the community is really important. If you create those fantastic guidelines, but no one uses them, it's, you know, you've just been wasting your time pretty much. So, uh, and uh, adoption will only work if the usability is, is there as well, right? Um, if um, Otherwise, it's going to be restricted to a few people who just are really passionate about reporting their methods really accurately and uh, will have the, will take the time to do it. But if you don't, if you can't manage to make it easier for uh, every researcher to do that, uh, and to quickly show them that there's an advantage of doing that as well, then I think it's going to be um, it's going to be hard to just going to be hard to sell. Yeah, so well, that's, that's sort of the effort working we're working on now. Yeah, and that kind of speaks to the whole culture. Um, you know, where are the incentives uh, to to actually do this? Um, you know, it's partially to be, have your data accepted and everyone wants that and everyone wants it shared. I mean, I guess some people don't want it shared. Some people, you know. Uh, <laughs> There's still a few um, out there who don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, and so our, our, you know, obviously you want to make it as easy as possible to sort of minimize that, that, that amount of work that goes into it. But then are there, like, what, what would you tell people the incentives other than just being a good thing? It's kind of like, you know, recycling or, or things like that. I mean, people do it and they get in the habit of doing it. Is that, is that what we're relying on here or is there some other way of leveraging? Um, so you know? the, the goal sort of like the, the end, one of the end goals sort of pie in the sky type of uh, like things that I'd like to get to is uh, when people have clicked through a whole checklist to describe what they've done, um, you can generate, you can, you'd actually be able to automatically generate sort of the method, part of the method section of their, their study, right? So they would not have, people would not have to do that because it would be done for them in a sort of system, in like automatically, right? So uh, that would be, and that's just, and the advantage of a checklist to make sure you don't forget anything. And then uh, people sort of, you know, that's the card they get is that here's your method section. You have some uh, tools that already do that. So um, we were talking about pre-processing. So fMRI prep, which is one of those pipelines that exists, yeah. will generate the method section corresponding to what pre-processing has been done. So the idea is a bit the same, 
but we're trying to make it more flexible. But that's that's an end goal. We're not there yet, but that's definitely where uh, what we are what we are aiming for. Okay. Kind of interesting about trying to convince people who've been doing fMRI for a while that they might need to do something else or need to report more. One thing I've tried to do is incorporate Kobidas into the teaching I do of both undergraduates and graduate students. And so like I ask them as they're looking at papers from the literature, are they compliant with reporting standards uh, like Kobidas, for example? And uh, a lot of students, it's kind of interesting the reaction that you get from them. They, they aren't aware of it, uh, of the Kobidas uh, report. And when they look at it, usually the reaction is, well, this seems to make a lot of sense. And so, you know, I'm encouraged by that, that, you know, some people who are entering the field or maybe entering the field um, will already have this as kind of a baseline, right? This will be the norm for them. And so hopefully as, you know, new generations come into the field that they're already starting off at, at a good place. And I'm just gonna jump in also say another really good like pedagogical aspect of Kubitas that I have found is that when I've had people helping me on the project, sometimes they realize they don't even know what some of the questions are, what they mean, right? And, and therefore there's a, a really good potential to sort of educate early research, like early career researchers to what some, what some of the, why you should report this and why it's important and how it can affect your, your data or so it, there's, there's, I think a good sort of like education aspect to this uh, project as well. Yeah. It definitely does seem that you're right. It will, it will iterate and, and people will get educated on, okay, so I'm reporting this and I need to be aware of this and, and, and raise the standard of, of the research everywhere in that regard. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, I think it's wonderful to try to make it, you know, a sort of an easy checklist as, as much as possible. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll shift towards the, a little bit more towards the goal. I mean, obviously the goal is to make the data, to share it, to make it more reproducible, to, fend off, uh, you know, criticisms of, of, you know, how fMRI is useless or whatever, but, and ultimately it's to use fMRI clinically. I mean, there, you know, and it seems that at least one aspect of clinical use is to generate biomarkers. And you're, you're looking for like, you know, vanishingly small effect sizes and you need really clean data. Um, some people argue though, uh, is, is, it's really necessary to pool such large data sets. Why not? Uh, you know, some people still stick to their N of 20 uh, and, and expect to get, you know, they get results and they, re they write up a paper and they feel that's good enough. Uh, some people do one subject or five subjects, you know, hundreds of times. Uh, that might be good. You know, are, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts, I mean, obviously, Kobidas sort of ties into all these, but um, especially though for those, uh, you know, large consortiums that have many different scanners uh, that want to pool their data to maybe generate, you know, something like the UK. Well, even the UK Biobank is unique because that has the same scanner. Uh, and it's, you know, just the same scanner spread, spread around to some degree. So there's some control there, but there's some consortiums like ABCD that uses different vendors. Uh, but there's also wide open data sets where you just simply take whatever you can get. Are some more worth doing than others? Or I mean, is there something to say for these N of 20 studies that produce something? I mean, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab. And I think it, it, as you're hinting, it depends on the, the goal. I'm, I would like to say that I think there are some effects out there that are incredibly robust and you probably don't need much more than 20 subjects. Uh, you know, if you're looking for the main effect of working memory in a back continuous performance task, 
that, that probably doesn't, you get huge responses uh, in response to that task. Now, instead, if you're looking for subtle modulations of that task, you know, correlated with some intrinsic uh, trait of individuals, eh, you, you may be struggling with, with 20 subjects to, to, tease, to tease that apart. So I think, you know, for, for main effects or sort of just asking primary questions about different tasks, it's possible that with small sample sizes, you may, may be able to, to, to suffice, that may suffice. But it seems like most of those things are kind of been sorted out. They got their start in PET even before they're then replicated and further explored in fMRI. Um, and we're to a point where now we're interested in, in these subtle things. And, you know, how does uh, brain responses relate to uh, subtle health traits or um, uh, socioeconomic status? And I do think that for those sort of questions, we, I think we're getting to the point like the geneticists have gotten to that you really need large data sets if you want results that are going to generalize. And things that boil down to correlations, basically you've got a, a noisy measure of brain activity and a noisy measure of some uh, uh, trait of the individual, you just need really large and hopefully as diverse samples as possible to get results that are going to uh, generalize. But the converse is that if you are interested in elucidating, you know, the subtle structure of a behavioral effect, then it may actually be better to then take a small number of subjects and really scan them a long time to really kind of get rid of measurement noise and really understand. And of course, that's almost getting taking the lead from uh, non-human primate work where you, where you do just have a very small number where you actually, but you collect a lot of data on those small number of individuals and you can see how that could work uh, for, for some specific questions about, uh, you know, the structure of uh, cognitive processes. Yeah, yeah, Remy. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to jump in to say, well, I mean, first I think uh, it, it, it's still good to remember that in some fields it is really hard to get large sample size, right? I mean, that's something I, just, I sort of discovered in the lab I joined here where they do a lot of research with blind participants. Uh, it is really hard to get a very large sample size when you work with blind participants. So in this case, um, I think, um, you know, the focus is definitely trying to sort of uh, making sure that you get data of really good quality and make sure, I mean, once again, I'm going to go back to it, but make sure that you report your methods accurately so that if people want to do meta-analysis, then they've got all the information about um, your sample, your design, your acquisition parameters so that they can combine information across it in an appropriate manner, right? So that's, I think that's, that's yeah, another way of how we think like, you know, making sure that you've got standardized guidelines uh, for reporting can really help as well, even for the like, small sample size stuff. Yeah, and even these big studies, UK Biobank is, it's amazing amount of data. Um, human Connectome in the US, Human Connect, ABCD, some of these other ones, they're really amazing resources. Um, but even if they all decide to use the same make of scanner, they're going to use a Siemens 3T Prisma, for example, still site-to-site -site variation exists. You, you want to be a little careful about just combining all that without taking into account the uh, acquisition sites, because even like, you know, su uh, successive serial numbers off the assembly line probably are going to produce slightly different, uh, you know, scanner-specific effects that you want to be aware of. Yeah. There's a workshop at the NH September, and I think, I mean, it's interesting. Hugh Garavan was was talking, and they're discussing the problem with uh, you know some of the ABDC uh, you know preliminary results showing you know not much of an effect size, and I mean then they thought well maybe it's the scanner differences and whatever, uh, and it might be, um, but and certainly that would help be helped with more data. But also I think 
talking about the more of the subject parameters, uh, more of this behavioral measures, uh, more of their demographics. And, and what Hugh did is he sort of parsed the data based on the demographics and he started getting much larger uh, effect sizes. And obviously it's a little bit tricky. You don't want to you know, select your data based on you know, getting results, but if you object, have an objective way of parsing even variability in, you know, we're all different. And uh, um, if you, uh, and there might be some subcategories of, of, of people that fall into uh, a, a response you know, pattern, uh, pattern of activation or, or even timing or whatever, uh, that might be very different. And, and sort of trying to let, he sort of like said, well, let the data sort of show me what's different and then I'll see if that corresponds to differences. And so once again, it comes with clear reporting um, of and clear metrics all the way from acquisition to, you know, subtle subject demographics even. Um, uh, once again, depending on the study. Uh, that may, may or may not be necessary. So, well, I think these these are the sort of questions that we can finally look at when you have the four and five digit ends to be able to discover what is the heterogeneity in your in your sample that you just yes. really don't have the, the, the luxury of doing with smaller sample sizes. Yeah, I I completely agree. I completely agree with that. Yes, you, know, you sort of answered the questions like all of these types of studies. You know, the small and large end. Um, different vendors, same vendor is are worth doing. And obviously we try to as hard as we can to keep the variability as low as possible, but reporting sort of fixes or helps to fix that problem just by simply uh, allowing you to sort of parse the data in some way afterwards. Um, uh, it would be great to sort of try to figure out ways of algorithms for normalizing uh, the data instead of parsing it. Um, potentially. Um, I, I agree. The first step is getting that all recorded. And, and the ideal setting we would be in is that every paper would have a machine readable uh, appendix, you know, or a file that would describe, you know, basically the answers to the, the e COVIDOS questionnaire that would begin to, to give a, some data that would then help us parse apart results. When mm -hmm. So that would be in the role of doing meta-analysis. You could then start trying to controlling for subtle differences in the way studies were carried out. Exactly. Yeah. And those, those small and even those small end studies, you know, being uh, respectful of what's in the COVID us, it's a, it's a measure of good faith that you've, you know, done, you know, you've done your science and you're reporting it as fully as possible. So that those kinds of, you know, that filtering can and the accommodating these subtle differences can be accommodated for um, so that we can try and, you know, clear up where some of the source of this variation comes from. So also related to um, reporting, I guess, uh, you know, there might be, it, you know, we even thought of like, you know, we, you know there some discussions of reporting time series metrics. And, and that's, I mean, to report that well, it it's, takes a certain amount of software to pull that information out. Uh, and there might be, you know, differences in the software. Um, is it, it, you know, where do you go in terms of, do you say, well, these are the metrics you want to report, but then, Let's say everyone uses different software. Uh, you know, Russ has, Russ Poldrak has some, uh, you know, MRQC sort of software, and there's other groups that have software for doing this, and it's all different. And they all think they're reporting the same thing, but it could be a different thing. So, do you think there should be some sort of code standardization as well in terms of uh, software for gleaning that data to report? 
I think standards for for basic QC things, I think would would be would be great for interchange because I think I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the work that has been impossible with uh, uh, Russ's uh, fMRI QC. They if you opt in, uh, uh, you or maybe failed opt out. I'm not sure which way it is. Uh, you, da summary data is collected on the studies you run through uh, fMRI QC, and that's just an amazing resource to see the, the heterogeneity of, of uh, the the data and the, the yeah. differences. I explained that that differences in quality. So I think that would be a, an important thing. Maybe a Kobidas can can contribute to that. And yeah, if, if people can agree on what the equations are, at least, then how they get implemented uh, is kind of another thing. But because, uh, you know, different people want to use MATLAB, some people want to use Python, some people like ANSI standard C, but however it got implemented, you know, agreeing upon what the equations were that describe, say, image quality, uh, those hopefully could be a little more easily agreed upon. Yeah, I think we, we, we just have to be careful of getting to a point where it is tempting to say, oh, come on, this is, we all agree on this. So let's all use this one software, you know? It's, we've seen and that happen, yeah. <laughs> we've seen that well in the, in some ways the cluster <laughs> failure was about that. You know, everyone thought like, oh, random field theory, that's all, yeah, everyone trusts that, that's good. You know, it's all being implemented the same way, but mm -hmm. you know, basically it's science. We always have to keep on going back and, and checking these things. Well, and we don't want to crush innovation either, right? We want people to kind of like be pushing the edge of the envelope as it were, and you know, trying new things. We don't want to stop that, um, but it's nice to make sure that uh, people are using, you know, they, they calculate the mean in the same way, you know? Yeah, yeah, even even something like that. So it's it, it's, it's tricky and it can make a difference, but um, yeah. Oh, Remy, you were going to say something? No, I, I guess I, I would say that the, the, the bare minimum in that case would be just at least tell us what is sort of the pipeline you use to do your, your QC and what version you use, right? That would be like, you know, at least we know and we hope that by this we can point to the equation that was used behind it. That would be yeah. like the minimum, at least, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, no, I see, I, you know, in some regards, I see certain software obviously converging. Um, uh, but at the same time, I mean, it, it's a little scary. I mean, it, when, when, you know, as we get, right, we go to high resolution, uh, you know, different vascular calibration approaches, different parcellation methods, deep learning. Uh, you know, there's, yeah. that's a black box in itself. I mean, how, how do you think um, uh, Kobidas could potentially you know, address these things in a, you know, I don't even know if it can or not. Um, I don't know whether there's- Yeah, I mean, when we when we discussed this in the committee originally, it's just, it's everything is, 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 it's research, right? So it's moving, it's a moving mm -hmm. target. And and also I was, I was involved in another project uh, called the NIDM, Neuroimaging Data Model. And this is, was trying to say, we are going to develop a controlled vocabulary that will describe every facet of a study, well, we quickly realized that that's, for example, in um, resting state fMRI, there are just so many different ways that people do it. Some people use regions of interest, some people use uh, independent components analysis, mm -hmm. and there was, you know, relatively few, uh, there are some pipelines out there, but a lot of people, you know, just kind of roll their own and, and do lots of the details in different ways. And we were at a complete loss of how to do that. And so we, we took a, a problem that was more manageable. We, we focused just on task fMRI, where for better or for worse, there were just a small number of packages that everyone used. And basically those packages were doing roughly the same thing. Um, but that, that, that exercise showed me how challenging it is to really thoroughly and completely describe 
what people are doing. Even in task fMRI, we, my favorite thing was we had a one hour discussion of what is a threshold. And is, is a threshold <laughs> that's specified as 0.01 as a probability, is that the same thing as a threshold that was specified as, as uh, 2.3? And should those be represented semantically as different things? And it just shows you that if you are really gonna capture these things precisely, you need to get to that level. And, and that was the, the, the decision we made with Kobidas to say, listen, this is just, there's too much in here. We are just going to try to, to say, these are the things you need to report. Yeah. In, in all fairness, it, you know, it's a little unfair, I guess, to Tom and to the folks involved in, in Kobidas 2.0 to overload them too greatly. Right, right. No, solve everything, Tom. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> it, it's, yeah. And this is one of the reasons why OHBM has come up with its best practice committee is to help to like, you know, encourage Tom to take Kobe Das and, and Remy to take Kobe Das and, and bring it up to the current standard. But at the same time, look at uh, other domains, like for example, the, um, the quality control issue, you know, that may be it's related, but it's maybe at the other end of the processing pipeline um, where some more attention needs to be given. Um, and, and then there's other modalities too. It's not just uh, uh, fMRI, it, it's uh, EEG and MEG as we've seen. Um, there's a, an effort going on to look at how we describe and report on um, network analytics. And so we're looking forward to that. And there will be others. And so it won't all be COBIDAS. There will be several of these. And that's why OHPM decided to move in this direction because there's just a lot of different dimensions to what we think of as making neuroimaging science reproducible. No, this is, I mean, it's a, it's a hugely daunting uh, multivariate challenge. And, and yeah, I mean, it, and, and actually the fact is it's, the alternative of not doing anything is certainly the not uh, not desirable at all. I mean, we have to do something. Um, uh, it, it's important to to keep and actually try to you know keep changing the culture of neuroimaging such that everyone's aware of sources of variability and wanting to you know think in the long term in terms of sharing and 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 having results that are actually reproducible. Uh, you know, I guess we're getting close to the end uh, of the time. Um, you know, there's obviously so much, so much to talk about. But um, so, I mean, obviously, is there anything else you want to add as far as, um, I mean, there's OHBM making the best practices sort of efforts. There's COBIDAS. Uh, uh, and are there other groups? Um, I think it's worth mentioning if there's other groups oh, yeah. that, that, we, that we can work with as well that are doing definitely the uh, uh, International Neuroinformatics Coordinating Facility, the INCF, uh, has uh, really taken on looking at standards um, in neuroscience and neuroinformatics generally. And they're a very interesting ally in this effort. Um, many of us who are involved in the OHBM effort also have participated in INCF efforts. And there are a number of other organizations as well um, who are the following what we do in this space and they want to learn from us too. So we have an opportunity to partner with other international leaders in this space and to influence um, other efforts um, around, you know, sciences that utilize neuroimaging methodologies. Um, Remy, uh, I know is deeply involved in several other efforts. Remy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, no, that's true. I mean, trying to sort of coordinate with INCF would be sort of essential. I, I, I agree. Yes. Um, that's 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 for sure. Um, I'm actually just going to point at another another group. I think that um, uh, or sort of community is uh, all the people working on, on bids, which is the brain imaging data structure of the case. 
a lot of the effort around standardization at the acquisition stage is definitely something that um, that is is at the heart of the bits project i would say and um if 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 we can avoid reinventing the wheel on the computer side by reusing some things that already exist over there i think this is something that should clearly happen so uh, we're trying to sort of connect the dots on that on that front as well so um also because there are other modalities that are already be part of bids and uh if if copydas uh, wants to sort of like have an eye on that later on then it makes sense to sort of like keep those different moving parts connected somehow yeah yeah, no, I think echo that bids is essential because, you know, one of the uh, the recommendations from Kobidas is to share your data and share as much of it as, as possible. And bids makes it possible, uh, gives you a way to do that and basically tells you here's a way if you follow these, 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 uh, this outline, this, this approach to sharing data, you're going to make your data maximally useful to other individuals. And in fact, having all this data in bids format has then sort of supported this ecosystem of bids apps or tools that take as a starting point the data that will exist in, in bids format. And it's just been amazing to see that, that, that grow. I guess the only other thing I'd add is that I think for people who are actually in, in a lab or you know just a you know in a small group wondering what, what they can do and it really seems daunting. And all I'd say is to, you know, it's it every little bit helps. So you know if, even if you just pick you know one part of the 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 the, the tables to really pay attention to or you know it, doing incremental things is much better than doing nothing. And so I think it's everyone should have that in mind that it's everyone wants to have that perfect paper that everything is perfectly reproducible and everything's in notebooks and everyone could rerun it. And, uh, but it, it's, it's, it, that takes a lot of effort and that's where we want to be. But every little bit you can do to, to, to maximize the transparency, share as much stuff. You know, maybe your code doesn't, you know, isn't perfectly documented, but sharing those, that, that code, sharing the, the text files that give rise to your experimental design, all that is, is supporting the, uh, the sort of the reusability and sort of the transparency that will help uh, make your data as useful as possible to, to everyone going forward. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, that definitely, I mean, it, yeah, sharing helps not only spread it, but gives feedback to, to help improve it. And so, yeah, all right. Well, I mean, certainly what you're doing, what all of you are doing are, is, is critically important to the field. And it's a natural aspect of, of how the field is evolving, uh, should evolve. So, yeah, and it's, and it's not a clean, solvable problem. It's just one that we grapple with and by the nature of grappling with it, with it, with it we, we keep on improving things. So, all right, well, well thank you very much uh, for, and this is a really, really, at least in my mind, uh, informative and helpful uh, uh, podcast. And, and definitely there'll be a lot of work to be doing in the future as, as far as this is concerned, so. Thank you so much, Peter. This was great. Really Thanks, great. Peter. All right. Thanks, Peter. Thank you.